If you have a Bible, can I encourage you to open it to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11, and I'm going to read to you the first 15 verses of that chapter. And what we have depicted there is a, there's a moment here where the Lord Jesus Christ um, reflects with the crowds around him about the spirituality of his cousin. And his cousin is John the Baptist, who at this particular moment is in prison. And there's a verse in here which has gripped me over the years and which came back to me with fresh force this week as I was considering what to preach to you at the beginning of this new year and which I want to kind of unpack for you as an idea, as a theme, as an inspiration and to what uh, true spirituality and vigorous spirituality should look like. So let us read together Matthew 11, verse 1 to 15. It says, When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? You can see there that John sat in prison and he's in a moment of uncertainty about Jesus. Is Jesus really the Messiah or not? My cousin Jesus. And this is how Christ answers. It says, Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So Christ says, look all these signs, the kingdom's coming, and I'm the king, essentially what he is saying. And then he turns to the crowd and begins to reflect with them about John himself. He says, says as they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written... Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. And truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, or it can be translated advanced violently, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, I was gripped by this passage because we're at the beginning of a new year, and to me, New Year's do present something of an opportunity for us all, um, especially when we think about our lives, our spiritual lives. Now, it may be the case that you think, well, from the perspective of heaven, it makes little difference what time of year it is. And I think there's certainly truth in that. The Lord's mercies, the scriptures tell us, are new every morning. And in one sense, there's nothing particularly special about the turning of a year. And yet at the same time, from our creaturely perspective, it's also clear to me that God has given us these moments in our lives, the rhythms of our lives, in order to give us fresh opportunity. So it tells us in the book of Genesis, right at the start when God created the world, that when he was 
creating the lights in the heavens, it tells us that he created them for signs and for seasons, for days and for years. In other words, God built his creation to function around rhythms, and those rhythms are not only essential to life, but to our own flourishing and and health. And that's certainly true in the course of any day, isn't it? That you have certain rhythms in the day from work and rest and sleep and then doing it all again. But it's also true in the course of years. If God gave the lights to govern the years, then there is something about the the metronomic ticking of the years that is to cause us to go be awakened to the seasonality of life and to understand that with the beginning of every new year, there is new opportunity. And to my mind, one of the most precious aspects of this is that that is the heart of the gospel. A new year speaks of a new opportunity, and the gospel is all about new beginnings. So right at the outset, I want to provoke you, if you haven't already done this, to begin to think, what does the Lord want of me in this new year? You may well have already formulated a number of goals for yourself. Many of us do. And they may cover a wide spectrum of aspects of your life. Perhaps you have health goals. You want to get rid of the Christmas chub. Maybe you have professional or learning goals and things that you want to accomplish and mileposts that you want to pass in the coming year. And none of this is bad, and I don't want to disparage any of it. I think as humans, we absolutely need to pursue goals with our lives. And these goals that um, are stirred within our hearts, even if you might think they have nothing to do with your spirituality, actually they can be sanctified by God. Everything that we pursue in life can be pursued for the glory of God if it is not sinful. But I also equally believe, unsurprisingly, that the greatest pursuit that ought to fill our minds and occupy our thoughts, consume our vision at any time, but especially at the beginning of a new year, is the question of how we are to dedicate ourselves to the pursuit of Christ. It's not that the other goals in your life are unimportant. In a sense, they're all connected to that central aim. But without that central aim of pursuing Christ, they all become meaningless. And my urging and encouraging to you this evening as we reflect on something of the spirituality of John the Baptist as it's described to us in the words of Jesus is that you are invigorated in your heart to think, what is it that the Lord wants me to awaken? How does he want to stir me up? Part of my role as a preacher is first to seek God that God would awaken me I have just as much of a tendency to sleepiness and lethargy as anyone else, spiritually speaking. And I need the grace of God daily to awaken me, but then to stir you up. And all through the New Testament, the apostles, as they were preaching and writing to the churches, their job is to keep wakening people up spiritually. I love the language of Peter in one of his letters where he, he tells them to, he, 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 he exhorts them to prepare their minds for action. And it can be translated, gird up the loins of your mind. And the the image that's being used there is of, in the ancient world, if you're wearing long cloaks, if you wanted to go on a vigorous walk or a run or go into battle, you needed to gird up your cloak, tie them up so they wouldn't obstruct your movement. And he's saying that's a picture of how the Christian's mind ought to be poised and ready. Gird up the loins of your mind so you're ready for all that God is preparing you for, both the suffering and the challenges as well as the opportunities. My intention this evening, therefore, is to try and exhort you in that tone and that manner. 
What an opportunity this is, the beginning of 2022. What is God wanting to stir in your heart? And to do that, I want to draw attention to one verse that is a kind of key to unlock something of what Jesus says in this passage. I want to call your attention to the 12th verse where Christ says this, that from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence or perhaps advanced violently, and the violent take it by force. Now, the reason why I say that there are two different ways of translating this is because it's something of an ambiguous verse, and commentators are split on how it ought to be translated. Is it a negative verse? Is Jesus describing the sufferings of the kingdom from John's time until this moment? Or is he describing positively? And the the trouble is the Greek is ambiguous. It can go either way. I rather think that it is a positive verse. And the reason why I do is because Christ has just been describing some of the ways in which the kingdom is advancing. He told us, didn't he, when the answer went back to John, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. What he's describing there is the violent or vigorous advance of the kingdom Since John began his preaching ministry and Christ has taken on the baton and begun to spread the the good news and the message of the kingdom. Absolutely, the kingdom was making vast strides forward and that is what Christ is putting his finger on. Since the time of John, the kingdom has advanced forcefully and then he says, forceful or violent men take hold of it. And another reason why I take that as a positive Line is because of the way he's just been describing John and his spirituality. If anyone embodies that image of a violent or forceful, zealous spirituality, it is John the Baptist. And Jesus holds him up to his own listeners and hearers and disciples as an example. And that's exactly what I want to do for you this evening. What does Christ want to awaken in us with this image, this vision? of a kind of violent, holy, zealous spirituality that ought to characterize God's people. Now, before I get into the positives, I want to first just rule out a few negatives and what this means. We're asking the question, what is this zeal, this holy, almost violent, forceful spirituality that Christ is describing? What is it? And I want to deal with a few negatives first of all and just dismiss a few uh, wrong ways of thinking. The first is this, that this has nothing to do with an anger or belligerence that characterizes your disposition. It is true that the more you come to love the holiness of God and the more that you then begin to see the fallenness of this world, the more there can be a tendency to feel a frustration And sometimes, unfortunately, that can spill into an almost angry or belligerent disposition in the life of a Christian. I would say at that point, that has definitely turned into something sour. The Christian's life is never to be characterized by that tone or that disposition. We're rather to be governed by love in all that we are and do. And what does Paul say about love? He said that love is patient and kind. He said it doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. So whatever we're describing here when we're describing this zealous faith, it is not something angry or belligerent ever. And Christ himself, though he never lacked zeal, is also the one who at the end of this chapter, Matthew 11, described himself as gentle and lowly. These are our models. It's not that. Neither... Is Christ describing here 
anything like the use of force. Now, I, I know that I hardly need to say that in our day and age, except that the history of religious zeal has often been characterized by a willingness to use force, whether physically or psychologically. And that hasn't left us. We live in a day and an age in which the zeal for secularism and the progressive agenda is so strident that if you don't agree with the current issue of the day, you will be bludgeoned and bullied and harassed and exiled until you change your mind. It's human nature. But it has nothing to do with the way of the kingdom. And so as Christians, if we're seeking a holy, zealous, spiritual forcefulness, it never must never shade into anything like those ugly and bullying ways. And whenever that has in Christian past, it has discredited the gospel. That's not what I'm talking about, and that's not what Christ is talking about at all. John himself, who is his example here, was a victim of that treatment rather than a perpetrator of it. He is there languishing in prison when Jesus holds him up as an example to them. And I want to say one last thing by way of a negative here. We're not speaking here about anything like machismo. If ever there was someone who might be a pin-up for a kind of macho Christianity, you might argue that it's John the Baptist, this great bellowing preacher who lived in the wilderness and lived this rugged existence. But the trouble is, of course, that although I do believe that there needs to be something of a recovery, of a vigorous, and what you might describe as a manly faith in our day and age, and that that has largely been lost, a positive vision of what that looks like. It has nothing to do with the caricatures of machismo that are often prevalent in our culture, and that it's just a 2D masculinity. And besides, when Christ is speaking here about this forceful or violent spirituality, he is not speaking exclusively about or to men. It's more about the quality of your passion and zeal for the Lord. And so please don't let it be wrapped up with anything like a caricature or a misrepresentation that would in some ways diminish how we understand what Jesus is speaking of here. I want rather than to give you a number of ways in which I think Jesus speaks positively and describes positively the nature and character of this spiritual life. And I, friend, I want you to keep asking yourself, is this me? What does Jesus want of me as I enter into this new year? The first characteristic is this, that this kind of spirituality is rooted in and built upon firm beliefs and deep convictions. It's a conviction-led spiritual life. And the reason why I put that first is because this is the first point that Jesus draws our attention to when he's talking about his cousin John. It's there in verse 7. He asked the crowd, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? Now this is a rhetorical question. It's an image or a metaphor that's meant to vividly depict for us the exact opposite of what John was. And what the meaning of it, to my mind, and I'm pretty confident this is the right interpretation, what Jesus is describing here is that some people are like reeds. Have you ever seen reeds at the bank of a river? They grow on the banks of the Jordan in Israel. If a vigorous wind is blowing across reeds, what do reeds do? They give way instantly. And that is what most humans are like when 
The winds of public opinion and majority view and, and culture, cultural tides blow over us. We bend and buckle. We sway with the wind so as not to give resistance or to draw attention to ourselves. So when Jesus is asking this question about John, did you go out into the wilderness to see a, a, a reed shaken by the wind? He is, of course, saying, absolutely not. If ever there was a man who was immovable in the face of opposition, it was John the Baptist. He could stare down vast crowds of thousands of people and speak the truth to them with fiery zeal, even when he was being pilloried and hated for the things that he was saying. Now, what does this quality or this characteristic have to do with spiritual health and life? And the answer, I think I could put it across to you in the image of a tug of war. Have you ever engaged in a game of a tug of war? We have two teams pulling at a rope, and the idea is to pull the other team across a line. And if ever you've done this, and I have once or twice in my life, um, you'll quickly realize that if you wear the wrong shoes, or you're on the wrong terrain, or the, the mixture of the wrong shoes and the wrong terrain, your game is over. The minute you lose grip on that ground, you start sliding. It doesn't matter how strong or heavy you are, you're done. The other team has won. And the only way you can win at a game of tug of war is, of course, to somehow dig in deep in the ground. And then ideally also have a very large person at the end of your rope who is an immovable object that, so that your rope cannot be pulled forward. And that, for me, is an image here of what John the Baptist was like. His convictions were so deeply ingrained in him, his feet so firmly planted in the truth, that he was a total, totally immovable in the things that he believed and preached. Now, when, this is something that Lord Jesus Christ explicitly advocates for his followers. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, that great manifesto in which he described the life of the kingdom, the way that he wants his disciples to live, he tells them this, he says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. When this element of deep conviction and belief is absent in the life of a Christian, that Christian is profoundly vulnerable and I think one of the ways in which we've seen that in, the last, in recent decades is in the life of particularly our young people in churches. If any of you grow up in church, you'll know that many of your peers fell away from the faith. And I don't think it's any great mystery as to why that's the case. So often kids go to church and they're siphoned off into these youth groups where they learn very little about the faith they're supposed to believe. And parents have largely abdicated responsibility for ingraining and teaching and discipling their children in the truth so that the kids end up with only the vaguest notion or superficial notion of the things that they believe and they cannot withstand the assaults and the winds and the, and the tides of cultural opposition, especially when the culture is so deeply seductive. And quite predictably, they become like reeds blown over by the wind. It's not true only of teenagers and young people, is it? It's true of any one of us. And it seems to me 
that we're living in a particularly hostile age, an age which is increasingly hostile to the things that we believe. I don't think there's anyone here who doesn't feel something of the reticence or hesitance to publicly own your faith if you're a Christian. And maybe if you're on a journey towards faith, one of the things that would give you pause or make you stop and consider whether you want to become a Christian is the fear of ostracization that you might be excluded and exiled from your friendship group within the workplace. How do Christians survive? And not only survive, but flourish with a vigorous spirituality in such an environment. And the answer, it seems to me, is what Jesus is putting his finger on here with the likes of John the Baptist. This forceful spirituality has to be founded on deep belief and conviction. There is a responsibility on every one of you to ensure that your faith is not just superficial, that it's not just light with no heat, but that your faith is deeply rooted in in the word of God, in your understanding of the things that you believe, that you can, as Peter says in one of his letters, give a reason for the hope that is in you so that you can withstand, so that you can stand firm in the face of what is increasingly a difficult age in which to own Christ. A second element that Jesus puts across to us here that characterizes this passionate, vigorous spirituality of John the Baptist is his willingness to endure hardship for the sake of the gospel. Now, this is something that Christ himself modeled in his own life and the way in which he chose to live. Jesus grew up in the family business, in the family home in Nazareth. But when urged by the Holy Spirit, he began his preaching ministry (coughs) in which he began to travel from village to village. He turned his back on the comforts of home and of a roof over his head and of a regular and steady source of income and became effectively a homeless man in the preaching of the gospel. So that he tells us, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. It's one of the things he would tell people who wanted to be his followers. He's like, really? Do you really have what it takes? Do you really want to come with me on this journey? But if Jesus lived a tough life in the cause of the gospel, John the Baptist perhaps maybe outdid him on this. He famously lived a life in the wilderness in which he wore a cloak made of camel's hair, which I assume is kind of itchy, eating foraging locusts, which are giant grasshoppers, and wild honey. So he gets his protein and his carbs and somehow lives. And this is what Jesus has set, draws attention to. It's the next thing he mentions about John when he asks the crowd, what then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing. Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What Christ is doing there is he's drawing a contrast between the life and lifestyle that John chose in, in pursuit of honoring, honoring the gospel, honoring God. And the king, of course, was Herod. John's great opponent, the man who put John to death, who lived in the king's house wearing soft clothing and indulged every appetite and sensual indulgence that he could imagine. Particularly, it was his sexual vice that John calls out in him. 
And there's no surprise there that King Herod is living an indulgent life because when you, when you have no boundaries, when you can have anything that you want or imagine, you quickly become ill-disciplined, you quickly become self-indulgent, you quickly become flabby and, and obese, spiritually speaking. And that was true of King Herod. And Jesus is sort of mocking King Herod with this kind of contrast between John the Baptist and Herod. And the ones wearing soft clothing are in king's houses. John the Baptist, on the other hand, no. Why is Jesus provoking the crowd to think about this? And it seems to me that he wants to awaken them to a reality of the way in which John lived and the reason for it. Why did John live such a difficult life? And I think it has to do with his deep sense of being separated and called out to live for God and God alone. He knew that to give way to pleasures of this life, though the pleasures may be good gifts from God, would be somehow to dull his spirituality. And that in order to be red hot, burning zealously for God, he needed to separate himself from those things. And I think this is a great provocation to us in our day and age. It's not that the scriptures ever want to commend to us um, severe self-denial and the brutal treatment of ourselves in the pursuit of holiness. The Bible doesn't commend that ever. In fact, Paul says quite explicitly that it's useless. It doesn't really help you to become any more godly anyway. He says that in Colossians. When he said that some people make up these rules. They say, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. He says these have the appearance of godliness. Of, sorry, of human wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But they're of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. You only have to think about all these, you know, one of the great tragic examples of this are all these priests who've been, had these human rules imposed on them. You shall never marry. And then did it have any, any power in stopping them indulging the flesh? No. Because then they just went and abused all these boys. Human man-made rules don't make you more godly. But if that's true, and we're not here advocating that asceticism that has characterized some people in some spiritual pathways, we also have to be equally aware, and this is what I think Jesus is pointing out here, of the dangers of limitless comfort and pleasure. And if ever that was a danger to our spirituality, it's here now in the 21st century, when instant gratification is our expectation every day of our lives. You want something, it is literally three clicks away and it arrives that day or the next. And it's true of every part of our lives, isn't it? There's almost no pleasure imaginable which you cannot access almost within 24 hours, right? And it seems to me that if that we've had too much caution about these man-made rules, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, and not enough caution about the way in which our lives can be so boundaryless. And it seems to me that godly spirituality somehow finds a way in which we combine the joy of feasting as gifts from God as we've been feasting these last couple of weeks in celebration of Christmas and New Year, but also the power of fasting, of celebration, but also the the, the, the spiritual effectiveness of suffering in our lives and of hardship. 
And Jesus is pointing this out in John's life, and he's saying there, is some, there are some levels of maturity and spirituality and, and, and difference that are only attainable with those who endure suffering in life. John was one of those people. It may well be the case, and none of us anticipate this, but it may well be the case as you look ahead into this new year that God will put in front of you certain hardships or challenges that you've never faced before. And if and when you meet such things, don't meet them with a miserable frown and with a frustration at the injustice that you're facing. Meet them with gratitude and the opportunity. God is helping you to grow. God wants to refine you. Let me bring you to a third thing. Another aspect that characterized John's spirituality was his deep and clear sense of purpose. He lived a profoundly purposeful life, aggressively pursuing the calling that he knew from God was his. You think about how his very birth had been announced by an angel appearing to his dad in the temple, how he had been filled with the spirit from his mother's womb, how when he grew up reading the Hebrew scriptures, he could find in those scriptures verses that specifically spoke about him. Imagine what that must feel like. And Jesus points to one of them here from Malachi where it says, this, of he, this is he of whom it's written, behold, I send my messenger before your face who prepare your way before you. So clear was John's sense of calling and clarity about what God had commissioned him specifically to do with his life and breath and energy that once he had accomplished it, he knew he could say, my work is finished here. And this takes place in John chapter three when he's, Speaking about Jesus, John the Baptist says, he must increase, I must decrease. It's like he can bow out now because he's accomplished what God gave him to do, which was just to introduce the Messiah. So if ever there was a man in the history of the world who had a clear God-given purpose that drove and energized and impassioned his spiritual zeal and force, it was John, and the result is there and obvious for us. So when Jesus says, from the time of John until now, the kingdom has advanced forcefully, I am utterly convinced that part of the reason was because God laid his hand on that man with total clarity. There's something powerful, isn't there, about a human who knows what they're here to accomplish. But then I also think, that you may then dismiss this when it comes to yourself. You may think, well, look, that's fine for John because there were literally scriptures written about him. An angel appeared. But that's not true for all of us. We, we're just sort of walking through a murky fog trying to figure out what life is about and what we're meant to do. Should we really have the expectation that we can live with such a purposefulness and a clear sense of what we're here to do and to accomplish with our lives? And I believe the answer is emphatically, yes, we can. Yes, you must. Now, this partly just flows from common sense. The fact of the matter is that every single one of you is living a life on purpose. You are pursuing certain goals. Even if they're small and modest goals, or if they're great giant goals, you're driven forward by certain goals. The only question then is, well, whose purposes are you fulfilling? But I would add to that that I think the New Testament fleshes out 
This picture, this teaching of the dignity conferred upon every individual Christian that there are no little people in the kingdom. It does it in numerous ways, but let me just list a few of them. One of them is the gift of the Holy Spirit given to every single one of us. It's one of the unique characteristics of the New Testament. That whereas in the Old Testament there were select individuals upon whom the Spirit fell for specific purposes, the New Testament is the dawning of a new age in which every believer is, is, receives the gift of the Holy Spirit and can receive him in increasing measure. Why? Well, the Spirit fills us for the purpose of accomplishing the will of Jesus. He lives in us to give us power to live the Christian life and to fulfill the will of God. Then I would add to that also the teaching around the spiritual gifts in the New Testament. Paul tells us that the spiritual gifts are sovereignly distributed according to God's will. In other words, he looks at you specifically as an individual and decides exactly how he wants to equip you for the life that he's called you to fulfill. That is the, the, under, the right understanding of what Paul is saying there. And therefore... It follows that if God has filled you with the Spirit and given you specific spiritual gifts, he has a unique role for you to fulfill. Part of that is fulfilled within the context of the church family, but it isn't limited to that. The Spirit of God fills us for the purpose of being his hands, his ministers, wherever we are. Then I would add to that the teaching in the New Testament about what, the fact that you are called to be salt and light. Jesus says it to his disciples, you're salt, you're light. And his exhortation to every disciple is, don't lose your saltiness, don't hide your light. If ever there was a need for a sense of purpose in the Christian life, there it is in that teaching. We're here to bring about the kingdom, the kingdom expansion by being salt wherever we are, by burning with a bright light. And that's not just to do with our witness and the sharing of the gospel, that is primarily that, but it's to do with everything that Christ brings, every way in which Christ wants to change the world in and through us. Christ's kingdom is not confined to the church, as though this was just a lifeboat in a sinking world. Christ's mission is to take over everything. Psalm 2 says that God has given the nations to him as his inheritance. It means that everything in this world belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ and we are part of the mopping up operation. So that everything you touch, your friendships, your workplace, the influence that God gives you is part of God's, the opportunity to further the kingdom of God in your life. We could go on, but I only want you to, to go away and wrestle with this question. It's not, it's not, to me, a question of whether God has purposes for you. It's only a question of asking, well, what are they? And how can I submit to them? So that you can live with as much blazing intensity and desire and purposefulness as John himself. The violent take it by force. Let me give you a fourth characteristic. This violence is also a desire to push back darkness. Jesus says that the kingdom from the time of John until now has been advancing forcefully. And when he uses this image of the kingdom advancing, it's advancing against something, isn't it? It's a natural inference. And we have to understand what that means. If the kingdom of Christ is his rule in you and I expanding in the world, 
then the, the darkness that is being overcome is any rebellion against the rule of Jesus Christ. And the New Testament calls you and I to be, <clears throat> to have a violent posture against evil in our calling to manifest and extend the kingdom. I'll lift to you a few ways in which this is true. It's true, first of all, the level of your own personal holiness. Perhaps the greatest need of our world is for Christians to live holy lives. This is why I believe the New Testament repeatedly exhorts us to be violent in the pursuit of holiness. Where does it do that? Well, it does that whenever Paul tells us to put to death the deeds of the flesh. It's there in Romans 8, for example, when he says, if you live according to the flesh, you'll die, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh, you'll live. What it means there is he's saying that God has implanted within you a new nature, a new desire to fulfill and to obey his will, but there are still the vestiges of the old man what the New Testament calls the flesh. And it doesn't necessarily mean your physical body. It's a, it's a picture, it's a metaphor that you carry within you still these old desires that you need to keep battering until they no longer govern and control you. And this isn't just an isolated verse in the New Testament. It comes through in multiple places. But I think, for example, also in Colossians 3. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. So that when Jesus says about John that the kingdom is advancing forcefully and the violent take it by force. This is the kind of violence that I think Jesus is, is speaking of here. This aggressive desire to put the flesh to death so that you can live a holy life. Is there also in the way that we are to be engaged in what is glamorously often described as spiritual warfare, but really just means resisting Satan's temptation, fear, doubts that he wants to sow in your heart. So that, for example, in 1 Peter 5, uh, Peter tells us that Satan prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking those whom he may devour. And then he says, resist him, stand firm in the faith. This is the posture of a soldier, isn't it? A violent disposition says, no, I won't give way to doubt, I won't give way to fear, and I won't give way to temptation. And that, that is a vigorous, zealous posture that's required there and disposition. Christians who are blasé, who are apathetic, who are drifting in their Christian life are meat for the enemy, Peter would tell us. But a Christian who wants to live a godly life and who wants in some ways to walk in the footsteps of John and of Jesus Christ himself must every day wake up with a vigorous passion to protect what's yours in Christ and to call on, on God's grace and to stand firm. We could go on. There's more. But I only want to... to instill within your imagination and vision of what the Christian life looks like, this sense of this almost aggressive forcefulness that ought to characterize the way we live our Christian lives. And I want to bring to your attention one last thing here. I think this is the most important one of all, and that without this, the others are meaningless. 
And this is where you can outrun even John the Baptist himself because Jesus tells us something extraordinary in contrasting the disciples and the children of the kingdom with John the Baptist. It says this in verse 11. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And what does Jesus mean there? Well, if you remember at the start of this chapter, John had expressed his questions and doubts by sending a messenger from prison to Jesus to ask him, are you the one who's to come or shall we look for another? In other words, whatever John believed about Jesus, he wasn't there yet. And John, in a sense, represents the end of the old era before everything became clear about the nature of who Christ is and what he came to accomplish by his death on the cross. John didn't have the privilege of living to see that. So he saw through a glass darkly. He saw only in shadows and types. He didn't quite conceive or understand what Jesus was about and what his mission was and what he'd come to accomplish or whether indeed he was the Messiah. And this is why even the weakest, smallest child in the kingdom is greater than John the Baptist. Because even if you lack every other quality and characteristic that John had, you have Christ. And I think this is what Jesus gets to the very, really is at the very heart of what he's saying here. When he says that from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has advanced forcefully. But then he says in the violent, take it by force. And the language he uses there of taking it by force is seizing, apprehending, taking hold of something vigorously and passionately. And he will ask, what is it the Christian is called to take hold of with that kind of passion and vigor? And the answer is, without hesitation, Christ himself. If there is one thing that that governs the health of your spirituality, it is this desire to take hold of Christ, to pursue him. To trust in him. To listen to him. To love him and adore him. To walk in step with him. To be empowered by him. To come to know him in deeper and deeper intimacy. So that the degree to which you put Christ at the center of your life is the defining thing of your spiritual health and life. And everything else I've described is useless without this. We've been talking about having firm beliefs and convictions, about enduring suffering, about having a clear sense of purpose, about pushing back darkness. All of that could be true and could be said of people who don't even know Jesus, perhaps belong to other religions. But the one thing that we have that distinguishes us is that we possess Christ himself, our precious Savior, who taken our sins upon himself upon the cross and given himself to us completely so that we are now united with him. That's the heart of the Christian faith. And my exhortation to you this evening, as you enter into this new year, is whatever other passions and goals and pursuits that God has put on your heart to run after in the course of this year, do not neglect the main thing. Let your life be governed by an all-consuming passion to run hard after Jesus, to know him, to commune with him, to study his word, 
to invite him into your heart and, and to take control of every part of who you are. The violent take him by force. They want to know him. They want his life to run through their veins. He's worthy. And he wants to make himself available to every one of us. I want to encourage you to bow your head. We're going to pray by way of response. As Jono and the musicians lead us also in, in a time of worship and reflectiveness, we're going to take communion. But we eat the bread, we drink the wine. In other words, we imbibe the grace and the life of Christ into us. But it is also a confession and a, de and a declaration that as we take hold of these elements, as we seize Christ, as it were, with our, with our actual hands, we're also saying, I belong to you, Jesus. Come and govern every part of me. Consume my imagination. Consume my love and my affections. Drive out sin. Teach me your ways. Let me walk in your footsteps. The Lord wants nothing less of and from you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you have given us a gift of inestimable value in the gift of your son Jesus. So that even the weakest believer who puts their faith in him can say, I know Jesus and I'm owned by him. Thank you that you've given us Christ in his entirety. So that our life and our affections can be filled with him. Lord, we want to beg your forgiveness for the ease with which we devalue, downplay or ignore the preciousness of this gift. And how we can begin to formulate our plans as we enter into a new year, almost without reference to the most important person. And my prayer for myself and for this church, for those of us gathered here, my request, Lord, is that you will turn the flicker of love for you into a blaze. So that we'll look more like a John the Baptist. And less like the weak versions of ourselves. But you'll give strength to failing knees. And bending backs. That you will give us life and health and vigor. So we'll run hard after you. Spirit on us in a fresh way today. Thank you for the joy of festivity. Lord, you know how easily it can dull our spiritual senses. Waken us this evening, Lord. Put within us a resolve to govern every other resolution.